0: You are listening to a podcast from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Today we'd like to welcome Dr. Allison Jones. Dr. Jones is an assistant professor here at the UAB School of Nursing. She began her nursing career at the University of Kentucky in the emergency department, which is a level one trauma center. She completed her PhD in 2015. Her research has included um, interest in managing patients' um, with, her research has included patient blood, blood management, methods to help prevent blood loss, and reducing the need for blood transfusion in patients who have experienced a major trauma. She became involved with the Stop the Bleed initiative through her connections with the UAB trauma team. She is now a certified Stop the Bleed instructor and today she is here uh, to talk to us about Stop the Bleed. Welcome Dr. Jones. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So we're talking about the Stop the Bleed campaign today. Mm -hmm. Tell us just a little bit about what that is and how you became involved in it. Stop the Bleed
1: is an initiative that is driven down by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. So it resulted from um, a series of mass casualty events, unfortunately. That really brought to light the need to educate the public on bleeding control measures um, because very likely community responders or those at the scene of an injury or a crime are going to be the first ones to be able to help the victims before emergency responders arrive.
0: That's so helpful. So I know your research has really focused on preventing blood loss and managing blood conditions in patients. How did you get involved in this campaign? Yeah, well,
1: I had an interest in it just as a concerned citizen and a mom, but then also the nursing side of me, I know that nurses are great teachers, and so I wanted to know if Mm -hmm. I could help educate other people. So I got involved with um, the UAB trauma team because they are trying to disseminate this knowledge in the community, and I asked them what I could do to help. So now we have an active program of research where we're trying to figure out the best and most effective ways that we can get this knowledge to the public and how we can most um, efficiently supply people with the kits that they need.
0: Yeah, that's so helpful. We're so thankful for your involvement in it. Um, So you mentioned the UAB trauma team. Um, Tell us a little bit about Birmingham um, as a city's involvement in the initiative.
1: Sure. UAB is our level one trauma center in the state of Alabama. So what that means is that we are accredited as a level one, so the highest level of trauma center there is, and that accreditation comes through the American College of Surgeons. The um, guidelines for bleeding control are being enforced or being driven by the American College of Surgeons and it's coming down through all of these level one trauma centers So no matter what major city you're in your local level one trauma center is probably going to be a Resource for you in terms of bleeding control training.
0: Okay Um, So who does that kind of apply to who can be trained for this and how do we how do we get involved?
1: Anyone can be trained. Anyone who has an interest and a physical capability to apply manual pressure to a wound can receive this training. Um, It is There are various levels of the training that you can participate in based on what your experience is. So us being nurses, we might receive more in-depth training, but the standard Stop the Bleed training, anyone in the community who's interested can go through that.
0: So as far as reaching out, um, Mm -hmm. if you, I guess, are a part of um, an institution that wants the training, um, what's the best way that we can get this information and kind of get in contact with the right people? Contacting
1: the UAB trauma office. They have an outreach team that coordinates these trainings. And it's important for people to realize that the UAB team, myself included, we are able to provide this training for free. Mm Um, So that's a really important thing to know. The only cost that's associated with the training is the money to put together these bleeding control kits. So similar to training people in CPR, we don't want to train you on the use of an automatic external defibrillator if you don't have access to one. So if we're going to supply you with the training for Stop the Bleed, we want you to have the tools to be able to use that training. There are other places, such as your local fire stations, um, and your other private organizations that provide CPR training that will also pair stop the bleed with the CPR training, but those are associated with a fee.
0: That it's so helpful because I think um, our culture is so used to talking about CPR, and you know we know where the CPR, we know where the life saving equipment is in the buildings that we work in, um, but that stop the bleed is equally um, as important life-saving measure. And that having those supplies and having them available and knowing how we can respond in situations like that is um, absolutely important in moving forward now that we know these things, you know.
1: Right. And I, I totally <clears throat> agree. I think we, we are still, you know, Stop the Bleed training is very young. It was just released in 2015. Absolutely. Whereas CPR training has been going on since the 1980s. So people are still getting used to what Stop the Bleed is and still getting used to the the thought that it doesn't have to be associated with a violent encounter. This can be anything from a workplace-related injury to an agricultural injury to a sporting injury, you name it. Anywhere where there's major life-threatening bleeding involved, this training is going to be useful.
0: So talk to me. a little bit about, so we use the phrase life-threatening bleeding. Mm-hmm. Um, just for our audience, when we say that term, um, what, what do you mean by that? Like what are we talking about in those kind of emergencies?
1: That's a really important distinction to make. So this is not going to be where someone falls and scrapes their knee. Life-threatening bleeding is going to be a major source of blood loss to the point where someone can die within minutes of injury. So if you think of blood, and for lack of better terms, spurting from a wound or pulsating from a wound, um, that's going to indicate an arterial bleed, which is going to be very severe. Or if you think of blood that is pooling around someone, um, blood that is soaking through their clothing, that's going to indicate a major source of blood loss. And something else to consider is that if you encounter someone who is actively bleeding in this way, they may lose consciousness because of that blood loss, and that can indicate a really severe decompensation in their state.
0: And that can happen fairly quickly. Absolutely. That's really helpful. Um, So we're talking about the kits. Um, Tell me about what what comes in a kit, what kind of supplies?
1: The kits, first of all, you can purchase the kits pre-made on bleedingcontrol.org or um, other sites such as um, Stop the Bleeding Coalition is another place that you can buy them. These are kits that we independently put together. And this involves, we've got a tourniquet. It's a military style tourniquet. This is a cat nine tourniquet. And then your pre-packaged kits are going to have hemostatic dressing. So what that means is that it's a gauze similar to this that you can pack the wound and it has um, chemicals in it that will help your blood deform clots hmm. and help to stop the bleeding. So our kits, we've got a curlex gauze that you can use for packing and a compression bandage or what people commonly refer to as an ace wrap. And then we also have some gloves and a Sharpie. And the reason that we have a Sharpie in there is because nurses, we like to document things, <laughs> um, but we have a time stamp that we can put on the tourniquet to let Emergency responders know how long that tourniquet has been in place.
0: That's helpful. So,
1: so these are what we refer to as our personal bleeding control kits.
0: Okay. Um, yeah, I like their little bag, um, nice and organized. Yes. So um, tell me a little bit. I, you know. Until I started working with you um, and knowing more about this initiative um, when it started, I didn't know um, what a tourniquet, like a military grade tourniquet, I didn't yeah. know how they were different. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to see a little bit more about that just so our audience would be able to kind of oh, see sure. that and sure. I'd be happy to know show what you. they are.
1: This is going to clearly differ from what we know in regular nursing, mm-hmm. you know, the stretchy orange or blue tourniquets that we use to draw blood we're actually doing the opposite here we're trying to stop the flow of blood right with these it's going to velcro it's going to be one long strip of velcro that goes through a loop and you will slide it so the let me back up you can use these on arms or legs okay okay extremities any extremity that has a wound on it And when you put it on, you wanna go as high up on that extremity as possible. We're trying to get as close to the source of the bleeding as we can, being the core of the body. And we also, anatomically, if you think about it, you've got two bones in your forearms and two bones in the lower parts of your legs, and that's gonna prevent you really getting a solid compression around the major vessels. Okay, Okay? so we wanna go high up on the arms for the leg model. Yes, you're going to be a
0: great. So we're saying nutrition. that I'm bleeding down here.
1: Correct. So okay. we're we're assuming that you've got an injury down here so we can slide the tourniquet over and I'm going to keep this this rod right here is called the windless rod and that's what's going to help keep this the pressure on the tourniquet. So we're going to pull this tightly. I'm not going to use my full strength on you. <laughs> we'll go easy on you. But I would tighten the Velcro Mm -hmm. first and then use the windless rod to turn until I couldn't turn anymore. And a way that you can tell if you're actually compressing um, enough is to see if their pulse decreases or goes away. As you twist. Right, because you want to eliminate circulation or reduce circulation because you're trying to stop the bleeding. The windless rod then gets tucked into this area and you can tighten. Your timestamp over it to keep it in place, and then of course write the time that it was applied.
0: Wow, they're yeah. they're very they are very strong. You can tell <laughs> even though you're not tying it you very tightly, tell. you can tell that you could absolutely cut off someone's right. blood flow and right. potentially save their
1: life. Right, um, and you know it, it's possible that as you compress that extremity, you may need to undo this and tighten even further. Mm-hmm. So you can adjust it, but you don't want to release the pressure. Okay.
0: You just kind of have to reassess. Right. Um, So tell me, are these kits expensive to put together? I know you were kind of mentioning if you do training, we want the people that you're training to have access to the supplies.
1: Right. Uh, The American College of Surgeons has recommended materials that they put in their prepackaged kits. However, if you talk about a setting such as a school or um, an office park where you have a lot of kits that you want to put in multiple places, it can get really expensive because the prepackaged kits can cost about $70 or more.
0: And that's just for one person. That's just
1: for one of these kits, absolutely. So another way that you can go about doing this and what I do and work with the UAB trauma office is we take up the money that is needed to put together these kits by ordering the individual items in bulk. So instead of purchasing the pre-made kits, we put them together ourselves and it usually ends Safe up costing cost. around 30 to $35 per kit.
0: So I'm curious, um, can you put a tourniquet on yourself? Um, sometimes. Maybe.
1: Sometimes. I. To be honest with you, I have not tried that. There are specific tourniquets that are one-handed tourniquets. So that is an option. And that might be a really good option for people who may be working in rural areas or who work in isolation. So if mm-hmm. you think about um, maybe people in the agricultural industry or long-haul truck drivers, for instance, they would be ideal people to have a one-handed tourniquet on board.
0: I didn't know those existed.
1: They do. <laughs> they do. There are specific companies that produce the one-handed tourniquets, um, and I think the military uses them as well. That makes but sense. These tourniquets are. I think they can be applied with one hand. It's going to be much more difficult, um, but you generally would use <clears throat> two hands.
0: So it's military grade. Um, if you did have someone wanting to put these kits together themselves, I've heard you talk about like a particular tourniquet that like this. Windless rod um, is they're different on different tourniquets, mm-hmm. I believe.
1: Yes. So let's say I wanted to put together one of these kits on my own just to, to store it in my car for my personal use. You can buy these on Amazon, but you have to be really careful with the type that you buy. So there are some that range in price from, you know, $9 up to $35. These Cat9 tourniquets are gonna be more along the $30 range. The cheaper tourniquets don't have the windless rods that hold pressure adequately. They tend to bend after sustained amount of pressure and that's really gonna defeat the purpose of the tourniquet.
0: Okay, and this one, say the name of it when we're done. This is a
1: Cat9, 9. Cat, 9. C-A-T, like the animal. Perfect. <laughs> Cat9, yep.
0: Um, we actually have a question from our audience. Okay. Um, the question is, in an emergency, can the tourniquet be applied over clothing?
1: It can, yeah. Ideally, if you can remove the clothing so you can see the exact source of the bleeding, that's the best scenario. But as I demonstrated the tourniquet on your arm, you can absolutely put it over clothing. You just have to be careful with it. The reason I say that is, let's say it's winter time and your arm is bleeding and you're wearing a thick winter coat that's going to impede the amount of pressure that I can apply with this tourniquet. Or, you know, men like to carry things in their pockets. If there's someone who's bleeding from one of their legs and you need to put a tourniquet on the leg but they've got a cell phone or a wallet in their pocket, then you want to remove those items.
0: Okay, Um, so these kits are wonderful. What if you don't have a kit available? Um, Are there other ways that we can kind of use the stop the bleed Mm -hmm. um, strategies to save a life? Sure.
1: In an emergency scenario, let's say there's a kit but it's on the other side of the building and your priority is you want to stop this bleeding that's happening. You can use clean clothing to provide pressure and pack wounds and a lot of people's reaction is, well, what about infection you know just because it's a clean shirt doesn't mean it doesn't have things on it right And what we, we acknowledge that concern but it's also you're weighing the risk of infection versus the benefit of saving the life right So if, if you're able to stop the bleed using a clean shirt then do it. You can also use improvised tourniquets so it's gonna act in the same method as a um, as a commercial tourniquet but it won't be as effective. So this could be things like a belt or a shoelace that you can tie around the extremity. Again, it'll it'll have some benefit to it, but it probably won't be as effective as the commercial tourniquets. I understand. If nothing else, we always tell people apply pressure. Right. Use your hands and apply pressure.
0: Anything you can do to stop bleeding. Yes. Um, tell me about, um, we've kind of talked about the tourniquet, but um, looking at your uh, Curlex and your ACE wrap, Mm -hmm. um, I guess there are other ways that we can kind of stop bleeding or kind of assist with the tourniquet?
1: Yeah. Um, So in the training, there's an algorithm that you go through to help you identify, um, you know, first you establish scene safety, similar Mm -hmm. to CPR, then you activate the emergency response system, and you have to locate the wound. And depending on where the wound is and what type of wound it is will dictate whether you can use the packing, the tourniquet, or both. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring out one of our training legs here to show you. This is our lovely model that we use in the training. And I want to reiterate that watching this episode is not a replacement for participating in the training, but it does give you some idea of what you can expect to see in the training. So these wounds are simulated, and you can f- stick your fingers inside and feel tissue and bone, and that might be a little bit hard for some people mm-hmm. um, to comprehend or to um, to deal with because you know we do these trainings with with school teachers, and so we're talking about small children getting wounded, and that's mm-hmm. never fun. Right.
0: Um,
1: but if you think about you know this is a person you care about, you want to do what's best for them and help them out.
0: Certainly.
1: So with this packing, we would unravel the gauze and kind of bunch it up in a ball. And if you can locate the vessel in the wound, you want to put the packing directly on the vessel to start your compression. And then I'm going to hold compression with one hand while I pack the wound with the other one. And I would continue packing until the wound was completely full of the gauze. And I can use the remaining gauze as extra pressure on top and put the compression bandage Around. over it. Perfect. Yeah, and then uh, even after <clears throat> the compression bandage is on, mm-hmm. I can still hold pressure.
0: I'm sure it's difficult to kind of know how deep a wound is mm-hmm. without really doing a good assessment. And kind of, yes. Can you, do you ever stick your finger in it to actually see how sure. deep it is? Because oh, sure. I guess you would have to do that to put the curlex on it, correct? Yes,
1: yes. And so, you know, it's, it's always going to be concerning if you don't have access to the kit and you're just using something improvised. Um, Clearly, you wanna promote your own safety as well, so if you have open wounds, you probably wanna see if somebody else can be the one who's physically handling the wound. But we do put gloves for your safety into the bleeding control kits.
0: That makes sense. Um, This is incredibly helpful. This is a great model. It is. And thinking about using this um, primarily in community settings, um, thinking about um, the Good Samaritan laws and um, Mm -hmm. being someone in the community and um, being the one at the scene, maybe the first one on the scene helping, um, what kind of concerns do you think that people would have um, in kind of providing this kind of care?
1: The biggest concern that we hear is, what if I make things worse? and it's a, it's a very legitimate concern. But the fact of the matter is, this person is experiencing a life-threatening bleed, and if you do nothing, then they are very certainly going to have a bad outcome, whether it is decompensation or death. We know that bleeding is the primary preventable cause of death in the first 48 hours after an injury. So anything that we can do to stop that bleeding is going to minimize complications and promote good outcomes for that patient. When people talk about, you know, what if I what if I get sued or, you know, what if the people are not happy with what's happened or the patient develops an infection, and the good news is we have these good Samaritan laws in place that similar to protecting nurses who stop on the side of the road, we know that people who act in good faith and with good intentions are very unlikely to have bad consequences.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, I know we kind of discussed this training um, really launched in 2015. what, what kind of, and I have seen it more and more, mm-hmm. um, often with uh, other life-saving equipment like AEDs, I'll see a Stop the Bleed kit available um, with a sticker, and so I've been really encouraged to see the spread of it. Um, but what kind of challenges have you seen with kind of getting this information out there?
1: One of the big challenges is, I think, the stigma associated with it, um, you know, Again, with the CPR training being around for years and years, our society is very used to talking about people going into cardiac arrest. And it's a very grave situation, but the CPR training can save a life. And this is similar. So we want people to know that even though there might be a negative stigma attached to bleeding control training and the origins of it, it's still life saving information. And it's crucial for everyone to have.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I know that a lot of our um, viewers are bedside nurses so um, how can we apply something that um, is usually a little more community focused um, because it's one of those life-saving measures how can we kind of use that knowledge with our nurses um, to integrate
1: I think there's a couple ways that we can look at it Um, the first thing is that even though we are bedside nurses or a lot of the viewers are bedside nurses we all receive the same training throughout nursing school and then we typically go into a specialized area and if you aren't daily interacting with trauma patients or people who have life-threatening bleeds, then it's important to refresh yourself on these skills because it's very different to pack a traumatic wound in a public health setting versus the sterile wound packing that we're that you know we are used to doing in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So there, there are differences, and I think the nurses, no matter what area you're in, it's important to refresh yourself on that. Um, things can happen in a controlled clinical setting, you know. Crazy things can happen where you never know what you're going to encounter. So it's always going to be good to have this knowledge in your back pocket. I think something else to consider is that we have a lot of occupational health nurses In Birmingham, especially with all of the manufacturing that we've got going on, all of the rural areas that we have, if you're in a rural setting, you're probably going to experience a delay in emergency care just because of the location. So having this training and this knowledge can really save somebody when it's a delayed situation.
0: Absolutely. Um, You mentioned um, refreshing our knowledge and refreshing our skills. Um, With this certification um, and you leading those courses as a Stop the Bleed instructor, um, is there a number of years that you kind of have to recertify once you've gone through the training?
1: As of now, we just have our one set of guidelines and there's nothing in there that stipulates how long the certification lasts. It's just a one-time certification at this point. Um, So we still have a lot to learn in terms of how frequently people need to be refreshed on those skills. With CPR, we know that American Heart tells us that we need to be refreshed every two years. With Stop the Bleed, we are hoping to find out some more information about the, more, the most effective cycle of refreshment, whether it's every six months, every year, every two years, like CPR.
0: Absolutely. Um, we do have another question from our audience. Okay. Um, who do you make kits available to?
1: Um, kits are available to anyone. Uh, whether you purchase them online or if you are interested in getting training in your organization, we can help you get access to the kits. So they are they are available to whomever is interested in gaining them.
0: And um, that's that's amazing. That mm-hmm. truly is um, to have resources at our fingertips. Yes, um, mm-hmm. it's it's tough with especially with medical supplies um, to mm-hmm. kind of figure out where to go. So that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the Stop the Bleed and kind of talking um, in principle um, here, I know that you, through being involved in this initiative, have probably seen where this training has been useful in real life. Mm-hmm. Do you have any kind of real-life application or stories?
1: Oh, sure. Well, I'm, my background was emergency and trauma <laughs> nursing, a so um, we'll, we'll try to keep it to the less graphic ones. Um, but no, we would have patients who came in you know falling from scaffolding on a construction site and breaking a limb. We had motorcycle accident victims who had partial amputations of limbs. So there, I mean there's definitely several instances where you see these patients come into the ER with the tourniquet still in place. Um, and something that I think is important for those who work in emergency and trauma is to realize what that can mean for the care that you're going to give to the patient. So if I, if I see somebody come in where the tourniquet's been on for an hour or more and the tissue has started to lose color, then I know that they are gonna urgently need surgical intervention. Whereas if it's just a fresh wound, that um, you know we might be more likely to save that tissue.
0: Mm. I guess that's probably where your, ti- your timing probably comes into play mm-hmm. there as well, um, with how long it's been on.
1: Yes, and so something that I'd like to mention there is that um, you asked about concerns that Mm -hmm. people had. And one of the concerns is, am I gonna lose a limb if I have this tourniquet on for too long? And the evidence in the literature is showing us that we can really have these tourniquets in place for about two hours before you start to see any death or damage um, to the nerves and the tissue.
0: Two hours. So there's so much good information here. Um, I, What kind of resources are available after this where we can kind of go and find more information about all of the different things related to this?
1: There are a number of resources out there. Um, one of the big ones is bleedingcontrol.org and this is kind of the home base for all things stop the bleed so there are instructor materials if you go through a class um, nurses are the perfect people to become Stop the Bleed trainers and you, once you go through the class and become certified, you can go to bleedingcontrol.org and register as an instructor and gain access to the instructor materials. Um, another one is FEMA, or the Federal Emergency Management Agency. They have a site called You Are the Help Until Help Arrives. And this is wonderful for your community bystanders to go through some modules about how you can approach an injured person, what you can do to help them, with, even if it's just comforting them and reassuring them that help is on the way. It also has an animated interactive module where you can kind of choose your own adventure and you know you can see the consequences of what happens when you help someone, how to best help them versus what would happen if you, if you chose not to help.
0: That's, that's a fun
1: way to learn. It, it is. It's a good way to learn. Um, and then the other one is um, United Services University, I think. No, I'm sorry, Uniformed Services University. So they ha- there's a Stop the Bleed app that's associated with this. And what it is, either on the website or on the app, it will ask you, are you in a life-threatening situation right now? Are you encountering a life-threatening bleed? And you can choose yes or no, and it will walk you through the steps of what to do to help that person.
0: That is, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all have a phone and we have it with us, and mm-hmm. um, I know um, Dr. Jones showed it to me earlier, and it is incredibly user-friendly. It is. Um, so, I, you know, we have... Um, had a great conversation and um, I just learned so much every time I talk um, to our guests. But um, Stop the Bleed is so important and we're so thankful for your involvement in this initiative. Um, if there was one or two things that you would really want our viewers to take away from our time today, what would that be?
1: Um, I think one thing is if you see something, do something. I encourage people to help those who are injured and no matter what you have to do it with, apply pressure to a wound and really, really try to help that person and stop the bleed. And just know that this training can be beneficial to anyone, anywhere.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Jones. Um, It's been a pleasure to have you and thank you all for joining us on Clinical Pearls. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening to Clinical Pearls from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. This podcast is also available in video form at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash nursing network.